Please find the book of Exodus and chapter 15. I want to read verses 22 through 27. I want to talk this morning about the ministry of discouragement. Seems kind of uh, appropriate after uh, <clears throat> the Sooners, uh, those of us who are Sooner fans, that uh, a sermon on encouragement might fit. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And then he cried out to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters. And the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation. And there he tested them. Underline that statement, and there he tested them. Word means prove. There he proved them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes. I will, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. You remember that the context of this story is the Deliverance from Egyptian bondage and the miraculous Red Sea incident. And verses 1 through 21 is a, a song of deliverance that Moses and the sons of Israel sang after having been miraculously, miraculously delivered by God. And then three days later, just three days later, they were plunged into discouragement. I read an amazing statistic a while back. It said that every year a thousand ministers leave the ministry. That's pretty frightening, really. And I don't know all of the factors that um, cause that attrition, why ministers leave the ministry. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons that factor into that amazing statistic. But I think that more often than not, the main reason why we quit and turn back is because we get discouraged. Discouragement is one of Satan's most powerful weapons. When I was working out in the Northwest, uh, the people in the Northwest Convention told me occasionally, would tell me from time to time, he said, they said, you know, if we can just keep our guys from getting discouraged. He said, usually if they'll just stay through one winter, They'll, they'll hang on. I didn't know what they were talking about until I spent a winter out there. You never see the sun. I went 60 days working in the Northwest and never saw the sunlight. And discouragement comes so that when Satan wants to distort his witness, he pulls out his chief weapon and unloads on us discouragement. I'm looking into the faces this morning of people who for some reason or another deal daily with discouragement. Now I suppose that one of the main reasons why we get discouraged is because we don't know what 
to expect. We don't really know how things are going to work out, the route that God takes us, where He's going to take us. And so we get discouraged because we don't really know what to look for, what to expect. That was true in this story. These folks didn't really expect, didn't even think about the fact that it wasn't going to be long until they're going to be in a desert with no water and what water they could find was bitter. They weren't even thinking about that. All they were thinking about was getting out of Egypt and getting through the Red Sea. Moses didn't have any idea that three days after he led his people out of bondage that three million people be griping at him. I think I've got it bad. I mean, three million people griping at him. He lived on the edge of discouragement. That man walked a tightrope. He didn't know know what to expect, neither do we. And I suppose that one of the greatest ways to defend against discouragement is to kind of have a little insight into how things are going to turn out if we could just kind of sort of know what's going to happen, what to expect. So in defending against discouragement, there are two or three things you and I need to know. The first is that we need to understand that oftentimes, more often than not, success is followed by failure. Success, some of the greatest successes are followed by failure. Now let me just go in a little more detail in this context. God comes with His hand of wrath. changed his mind, and there the dust clouds rising on the horizon from the hoofs of these horses of the soldiers of Pharaoh, and they're bearing down on them. They come to the Red Sea, and God intervenes and parts the Red Sea, and they travel through on dry land. Then the sea moves back and swallows up Pharaoh and all of his army. I imagine this scene must have happened as they walked around the edge of that sea and looked at the bodies washed on shore. One of them said, why, I know him. He was my taskmaster who used to beat me for the sheer joy of beating me. And another looks down and says, why, I know him. He killed my firstborn son right before my eyes. And in the exaltation, exalting in the moment of deliverance, Moses breaks out in song and the sons of Israel join him and they rejoice and they sing. And some of the things they say is like, is this, who is like... Thee among the gods, O Lord, who is like Thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. And they sing, Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of Thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which Thou hast made for Thy dwelling, Thy sanctuary, O Lord, which Thy hands have established. It was quite a song. And had you walked up on the situation, you probably would have thought, Man, these folks are set for life. What a victory. God is in their, in their life. God's hand is evidently upon them. Why, He's anointed them with power. They're set for life. Then three days later, they're wallowing in failure, the most discouraged people you could ever see. And there is a spiritual principle, and I want you to get this spiritual principle. It's this, that most of the time, great successes are followed by tremendous failures. I tell you that, but it's true. And the Bible is replete with illustrations of it. I'm thinking of Elijah standing on Mount Carmel taunting the prophets of Baal. And after a while, he begins to taunt the gods, Baal. He said, why, they must have taken a journey. They must be deaf. 
And when the time came, he called on God and asked the fire to fall. And the fire fell, and it lapped up the water around the altar, and it consumed a water-soaked altar, and God was there. And the next scene, Elijah's heading out across the desert, running for his life ahead of Jezebel, gets out in the middle of the desert and begs God to kill him. And I think of the people of Israel marching into the new land across the, sea of jo- across the river Jordan, and they encounter for the first time a walled city. All they have to do is circle around the city a couple of seven times and shout and sing. All of a sudden the walls come tumbling down. What a victory. The next scene there in Ai, bitter defeat, and their nation is at the point of disintegration. And you turn over the New Testament, and there's Simon Peter exulting in the, in the perspective of God. And he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, You didn't think that up on your own. God gave you that wisdom. And the next verse, the next verse, Simon Peter's telling Jesus how to tend to his business. And Jesus is calling him Satan. And who can forget Paul saying, I was caught up in the third heaven. There are many people who believe that when he was stoned at Lystra, he literally died and was carried into heaven. He said, I heard things no man has ever heard, and I saw things no man has ever seen. And then he says, because of the wonder of that vision, lest I be exalted, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Now what happens when we have great successes? Well, the tendency of most of us is to feel like we've got it made. We've got all the answers. We, got, we know we're experts and we get all puffed up in pride. It's an interesting thing that Mara was on the map of God before they ever set out of Egypt. Now, there are some times when you come to the bitter, discouraging moments of life, you just understand you're not outside the will of God there necessarily. It may be the greatest evidence that you're in the will of God, for He orchestrates these failures and these moments of discouragement and these bitter experiences in order to empty us of pride. Sound a little repetitious, doesn't it? But it's, the fact is that the Bible's repetitious. And God brings about discouragement and bitter experiences in order to prove us. Oh, what a miraculous evidence of the supernatural omnipotence of God at the Red Sea. I want you to hear me now. Listen carefully. We don't grow and we don't learn to trust God at the Red Sea of miracles. We grow as a Christian and we learn to trust God not in the face of Red Sea miracles, but in the everyday necessities of life. God helps us, teaches us to grow and to trust Him in the day-by-day experiences. I want you to write this down somewhere. It's the truth. That miracles do not produce faith. Now occasionally, often, I'll talk to somebody who will say to me, well... I want to believe in God, and I think that I can believe in God if I could just see one of these miracles that everybody's talking about. Listen, miracles do not produce faith. Let me tell you what produces faith. Let me tell you how God helps us to grow and to trust Him. In the day-by-day necessities of life where you don't know where you're going to get the next drink of water, and He provides it. That's where you grow. 
He proved them there. And so He allows bitter experiences in life not just to prove us, but to prepare us. For this crisis of water, for water, is followed in the next chapter by a greater crisis, a crisis for food. And that's the way God works. Is that He brings us through one bitter experience in order that we might be prepared for the next one, which is greater oftentimes. It's a matter of preparation. And so He failed in business in 31. And He was defeated for the legislature in 32. And He failed in business again in 33. And his sweetheart died in 35. And he, served, he suffered a nervous breakdown in 36. And he was defeated for speaker in 38. And he was defeated for elector in 40. And he was defeated for Congress in 48. And for the Senate in 55. And for the Vice Presidency in 56. And for the Senate in 58. Now you'd think that after that, God get a little discouraged. I said... This morning in the early service, and somebody reminded me of it after it was over, I said the reason why he was defeated all this time was to prepare him to be elected for the presidency in 1960. It wasn't in 1960. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860. <laughs> but all of these ex bitter experiences through which he passed, why? So that he might be prepared for the greatest crisis of his life. Isn't it amazing? that God takes a Moses out to the backside of the desert and gives him 40 years of failure so that he can be prepared for one great moment. Oftentimes, remember this, that success is followed by failure, and there's a reason for it, to prove us and prepare us and purify us. Second, we need to remember, lest we become discouraged, that the greatest successes of life are often followed by forgetfulness. Now it's amazing to me, mind-boggling, that three days, just took three days for these people to forget what God had done. And so after being delivered through the Red Sea and out of Egyptian bondage, three days later when they got into another type, they forgot what God had done. Is, is it possible that a person could be that forgetful? It's what John Claypool calls the wages of amnesia. It's a ten, there's a tendency, I guess, in all of us that, that we forget what God did for us yesterday. And in the midst of the great successes that God allows us to experience in life, there is, there is, it is true, they're often followed by forgetfulness. Now I want to speak just briefly, just touch on the fact that some of you here this morning serve in various places of leadership in the church. I don't suppose there is a place in the world that's more vulnerable to discouragement than to do God's work. Am I making sense? I mean, I don't suppose that there is a place that, where there is more discouragement than where God's people try and do God's work because God's people are so forgetful. I have a friend out in West Texas. He, he came to a church that was literally dead, resurrected. He resurrected that dead church. He was a, he's a tremendous preacher. And he had this following. These people were just, you know, just following him. He was doing great. Some old backslidden, cold-hearted deacon didn't like him. Started telling stuff about him. It wasn't two months till that people who had 
followed this preacher to new heights, forgot all that he'd done, turned against him, ran him out of the ministry, broke his heart, caused a nervous breakdown. What I'm trying to say is this. It doesn't take long for us to forget what God's done yesterday. We're all guilty of it. Well, what do you do when that happens? Well, you don't, you understand that, you know, you don't take it personally. If you turn over the 16th chapter in verse 8, listen to what it says. It says, And Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him. What Moses is saying is, This is not a problem between me and you, friend. It's a problem between you and God. Don't take it personally. And don't take it out on the people. I noticed this about Moses. Not one time did he ever take this out on the people. What he did was he took it to God. Let me say just, let me just say parenthetically that when you come to a bitter experience in life, when you listen, when you come to a bitter experience in life, you can do one of two things. You can complain about it, you can grumble about it, or you can take it to God. And when he took it to God, watch this, when he took it to God, God told him this. He said, cut down this tree and toss it in the water. The only water they had, he's cutting down a tree and throwing it in it. When he threw that tree in the water, it turned sweet. Now watch this carefully. Write this down so you'll never forget it on the walls of your mind. Whenever you come to the bitter experiences of life and you look to God, he'll show you something already there that'll make the bitter experience sweet. Always happens. And so I stand in the presence of a family and there's tremendous illness in that family. And I hear them say, this is bitter for us. This is difficult for us to bear. But in all of this, we have found these friends to be so loving and compassionate. Our friends have meant so much. They've been there all the time. But God helps that that friend there, those friends there, to make a bitter experience sweet. And I stand in the waiting room and I talk to a man whose son totters between life and death. He's been through some terrible accident and I hear him say, you know, this is bitter experience for us and we live terrified that he's going to die. But you know one thing we found? That all this effort and energy to make money that we've given our lives to, we've discovered that it's really not worth, there's some things more important than making money and God all of a sudden shows them something in that bitter experience to make it sweet. It happens all the time. One last thought please. Before you get discouraged, remember this, that in the shortages of life, the shortages of life are always followed by fullness. Oh, I need to say that again. The shortages of life are always followed by fullness. It says, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Out in the wilderness, nothing to drink. Came tomorrow, bitter water, water before them. Couldn't drink it, it's too bitter. What'd they do? They kept on keeping on. Now you're going to run into experiences in life that are bitter. No question about it. 
Sometimes God brings those experiences into your life and orchestrates them, those failures. And sometimes Satan puts them there. Because you're going to run into obstacles in life. He'll see to that and he'll declare war on you. What should you do? Well, you keep on. You keep on walking and you keep on trusting and you keep on believing and you keep on praying because just, are you listening? Just on the other side of the hill, there's an Elam. And when they got there, there were 12 springs of water, one for every tribe. And there were 70 palm trees whose shade they could sit under, one for every elder. Because God always gives us more than we expect. Haven't you noticed that? He always gives us more than we expect. And they're out there complaining because they didn't have anything to drink. God gave them something to drink. In fact, He gave them more than they could drink. And so the thief hung on the cross and he cried, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He was asking that God would hold him in his memory, that Jesus would hold him in his memory until some future day. Jesus did something better than that. He didn't just hold him in his memory to some future day. He held him in his presence for the moment, you see. This day thou shalt be with me, paradise. And so he says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him. I'll be his... I'll be his guest. I think I've shared with you that when I was a a senior in high school, my pastor was a guy named Grady Allison. He was a tremendous preacher, very sophisticated guy. His wife was extreme. I mean, what they were doing in a little hick town called Monday, Texas, I've never been able to figure out, except that God let them out there. She was really sophisticated. A lot of folks thought she was stuck up. Maybe she was. But anyway, huh? He, he, I graduated from high school and, and, and I went off down to college. Margaret and I were married and he came down to Abilene to preach a revival and, and we were living in student housing. Really, it was a barracks. And we decided, you know, we were members of the church where he was preaching at revival. We, we asked him to come over and, and eat supper with us. I mean, we're going to have pork chops and what could you get better than that? I mean, you know, I mean, we're going to have pork chops and probably some French fries. Can't beat that. Now, I've thought about it a lot since then. I mean, I was ignorant. I didn't know any better then, but that was pretty amazing. The guy came, you know, to the barracks and sat down and ate pork chops with two college students who didn't have anything, you know, had nothing really. He could have been eating a steak place, you know, T-bone. He, pretty amazing as I think about it that he was willing to be our guest. He said, not only will I be your guest, if you'll open the door, I'll be your host. And he always gives us more than we can eat. And so I turn to the sixth chapter of the book of John, and I find hungry people there sitting on the side of a mountain. I've always, I've noticed that God's people always run out of necessities. And they're hungry there. And Jesus sets them down, breaks five loaves and two fishes, and gives them more than they can eat. And the only thing that keeps them from eating more is their capacity to receive. And when it's all over, they gathered up the fragments, 12 baskets full. For God always gives us more than we expect. 
You've come to bitter experience in life. Just keep on trusting because just on the other side of the hill is a, is, there are 12 springs and 70 palms and God has more than you can handle. And the amazing thing about this story is that the next day they got up and moved out. And the cycle begins again. This is the cycle that God comes to us in our need and gives us more than we expect and brings us to another place where there's need, where we trust Him and learn to believe and trust Him and walk with Him. And, he, and we come through that need and He gives us more than we can count on in order that He might bring us through another experience and show us again and again because I'm learning and I hope you are that the whole story of the Bible is God leading us to the place where we just trust Him. Now folks, hear me well. You and I have within our brains the ability to, to calculate and, and provide for ourselves and we have in our resources and our bodies the ability to accomplish, to, 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 to meet the needs that we have in this life. But let me tell you something. If you learn to trust the Lord, you'll get fullness more than you need. Have you ever wondered why they spent 40 years out there in the wilderness wandering around? Well, God was just giving them a test over and over and over until they passed it. And you know what the test was? The test was, will you learn, will you trust me in the daily essentials? That's the test. Is there anybody here this morning who needs to learn that lesson? Just trust God in the daily essentials. And so Maggie Savoy, this and I'm through, who writes for the Los Angeles Times, is dying of cancer. She had cancer 10 years before and she thought she conquered it and came back. And she writes this statement. Like the fact of cancer, I have learned another fact. I may not have a choice over what kills me, but I do have a choice over what I kill. I have the power to shape and to make and to spend and to use every single hour still on the books. I say it as a truth and as a fact. Slowly I learned by practice that one has the power over the quality of one's life. Not the quantity but the quality. One has the choice, and the choice is this. I will follow the Lord, and I will trust Him, and I will obey Him, and in doing that, I will find fullness. And if I come to the bitter morals of life, I'll understand that God is leading me through that bitter morrow because just on the other hill there's a greater crisis. And He leads me through that crisis because He wants to give me not a drink of water but twelve springs of it. For it is in learning to trust God that I find fullness of life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll not let us miss a single lesson of life. Most of all, Lord, don't let us miss the great lesson that we're to trust you 
to be obedient and to follow you. So out of our rebellion, out of our disobedience, we come to surrender our lives to you today. In Jesus' name. Is there anyone here this morning who would like to come to place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You'd like to be saved from sin. You want to go to heaven. You want Christ to come into your life and live. Forgive sin and make you new and whole and right and pure and good. Come this morning placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Him alone. So when we have our invitation, just get up and come down these aisles. Give your heart to Christ. Maybe you need to come to declare your faith in Him and ask for baptism, to be baptized, the final part of that initial act. Maybe someone want to, want to come this morning and join the church, college students and others who have come our way. You want to be a part of God's people. Come on today and join our church. Or there may be some this morning who have not yet learned to trust the Lord. You're not walking by faith. You're living in rebellion against Him. Why don't you come today and say, I want to put myself back in the place where God can be in control. I want to repent and turn away from that to, to, to there. Would you do it while we stand to sing? We invite you to come.